Hello and thank you for tuning in to another edition of Prophecy Update. On this edition of Prophecy Update, we'll be continuing a discussion between our host Bill Solace and Dr. David Reagan. This is part two of this discussion on the European Union and how it relates to Bible prophecy. Bill Solace, our host, is the author of the best-selling book, Israelistine, The Ancient Blueprints of the Future Middle East. And Dr. David Reagan is founder of Lamb Lion Ministries and author and speaker. Let's join our host and his guest as they continue this edition of Prophecy Update. Alexander's empire after he died, and this man was of Greek descent. He was not of Assyrian descent or Arab descent. Furthermore, most important of all, concerning Daniel 9, 26 and 27, it is irrelevant that there were Middle Eastern people in the uh, Roman army. The Roman army never used mercenaries. They only used their own citizens. The only people who were members of their army when they went into Jerusalem in 70 A.D. were Roman citizens. Now, some of them may have been from the Middle East, but they were Roman citizens. And so I don't think there is any way to get around the fact that it was Rome that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It was the Roman Senate that sent the troops there. They were controlled by Roman generals. All of the members of the army were Roman citizens. I just don't think you can get around the fact that this was destroyed by Rome. Right, and I know the arguments. They, they're revisionist history. They think that Roman uh, Legion 10 Fratentius was predominantly Middle Eastern, so therefore that's really who controlled the shots, and I agree with you 100%. Rome was stationed in Rome, and the Roman Empire came out of its capital, and they made those decisions. The other problem with this Ottoman Empire theory is in Daniel 2, of course, the fourth image is the legs of iron. So we're showing two legs, talking about a split of the Roman Empire, which we know historically occurred. And I don't see how the Ottoman Empire comes out of that split between the east and no, the split of those, Yes, you're right, Bill. Those two legs are symbolic of the split of the Roman Empire. And there's nothing in the Ottoman history that relates to that. Furthermore, to try to argue that that fourth empire is the Ottoman Empire breaks the whole succession. Again, the succession was uh, to start with Babylon, Medo-Persia overthrew Babylon, Greek overthrew the Medo-Persian, and the Romans overthrew uh, the Greek Empire. Uh, that's the succession. And there is no reason in the world to break that succession there. If you're going to say it's the Ottoman Empire, then you've got to stop uh, with the Greek Empire and jump up uh, uh, 2,000 years uh, to the Ottoman Empire. And that make, doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, and additionally, the Ottoman Empire theory regionalizes the worldwide kingdom reign of the Antichrist, doesn't it? Because doesn't it say in Dan Well, that, yeah, that's a, right. That's another argument. They argue that uh, the, uh, that the uh, empire of the Antichrist is not going to be a worldwide empire, that it's going to be a regional one. And it's just simply going to be a revival of the Ottoman Empire. To me, this is one of the most bizarre things about this particular attitude, uh, uh, this particular uh, viewpoint. Uh, when I first ran across it, I wrote one of the proponents of that viewpoint, and I said, how in the world can you argue that the empire of the Antichrist is going to be regional, simply a revival of the Ottoman Empire, when the book of Revelation says, in Revelation chapter uh, uh, 13, uh, that the Antichrist is going to conquer 
uh, the entire world. It says that he will conquer in uh, Revelation 13 and uh, verse 7. He'll be given authority over every tribe, every people, every tongue, and every nation. This is going to be a worldwide ruler who's going to have a worldwide empire. Well, the fellow wrote me back, and he said, well, we just consider that to be hyperbole. And I said, hyperbole? In other words, you're, you're saying it's exaggeration. Yeah, he said, you know, it's just... Yeah, it, it's just exaggeration. It doesn't really mean the whole world. And so I wrote him back and said, well, what would God have to say to convince you that he means the whole world when he says he's going to rule over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation? And he didn't respond to that. Well, and this is the issue. Revisionist history, uh, along with allegorizing prophetic future, these are the problems you're going to run into with this Muslim theory of the Antichrist. Another one that picks up what you said in Revelation 13, where it is a world order that we're talking about is in Daniel 7.23. Right. So they can also cross-reference with that. The other problem I have with their argument, this Antichrist Muslim argument, is that they have to throw Psalm 83, Ezekiel 38, these Israeli war prophecies, and rather than them being distinct, which you and I believe they are, they have to throw them all into the Armageddon campaign for their theory to make sense. Now, where are the flaws in that? Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, you're exactly right, Bill. They take everything. <laughs> they take all the end-time wars and lump them into one, the battle of Armageddon at the end of the uh, tribulation. And, uh, Bill, that, that just doesn't work, and, and it doesn't work for a lot of reasons. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind uh, is the fact that uh, uh, in the Gog and Magog battle of, uh, of uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have Russia leading certain specified allies that are specifically named coming down against Israel. Uh, but in the battle of, uh, of, of the Armageddon at the end of the tribulation, uh, you don't have those particular uh, allies mentioned. I mean, uh, uh, that's just not the allies that are mentioned there. There's in fact, they're not specifically uh, outlined there. So you've got one where they're specifically outlined, another where there's not. Uh, you've got uh, one occurring in the Valley of Armageddon. You've got the other in Ezekiel 38 and 39 occurring on the mountains of Israel. Uh, that's a big difference in the two. Uh, so uh, I, I just don't see how you can l uh, lump those two in together. And they, they do the same thing with, with Psalm 83, those inner circle of nations that border Israel. You know, and, and some people are also trying to throw Psalm 83 into Ezekiel 38, making, meaning that it may be part of Armageddon, but if it's not, maybe Psalm 83 is part of Ezekiel 38. And I think the same argument holds true against all that, which is Ezekiel, when he wrote Ezekiel 38 and 39, if it was part of the Armageddon campaign, he could have done like Zechariah and Joel had done when they talk about all the nations of the world and all the armies of the world right. will come in, and they don't. Ezekiel talks about nine specific populations. He even talks about three more who seem to abstain in Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish, the young lions of Tarshish. So he's being very specific, and he also, in his vernacular at the time he wrote, 2,500 years ago, could have listed Edomites and uh, sure. inhabitants of Tyre and those very entities that are in Psalm 83, and he opted not to. Why? Probably because they're not involved in it. So um, you had come out with a uh, wonderful teaching. We actually did a radio program on it about the nine end-time wars of the Bible, and you actually get in and sequence these wars and make them distinct, Psalm 83 
Well, Bill, I think you've done a great service to the whole uh, prophetic community with your book, uh, uh, Israel Stein, in which you talked about Psalm 83 and how it has to be a separate war distinct from all the others. And, and that just makes so much common sense because Psalm 83 specifically names the enemies of Israel that will come against it, and all of them are nations today that have a border with Israel. Then when you get to Ezekiel 38 and 39 in that war, again, it specifically names the allies that will come with Russia, and not a single one of them has a common border with Israel. So there's got to be a war where Israel fights against those with a common border, what I call the inner circle of Arab states, defeats those, and then Russia comes down with the outer circle of uh, Arab states against Israel, and God defeats them on the uh, hills of Israel. Right, and the motives are different in those two invasions, too, um, not to mention the difference in populations. The motive of Psalm 83 spelled out in Psalm 83, verse 12, says that they want to take over the pastures of God, in other words, the promised land. In other words, they want one more Arab state called Palestine, if we put it into current events. And then, conversely, the motive of the Ezekiel invaders is to take great spoil, plunder, and booty, and, and that type of thing that Israel would be in possession of in the aftermath of a Psalm 83. Now, the other arguments that you and I have talked about in the past is, is the Israel of Ezekiel 38 in existence today? Is it dwelling securely without walls? What's your thoughts on that? Well, of course not. And this is, this is one of the things that really concerns me is because you have an excellent teacher, for example, like Joel Rosenberg, who has gotten a lot of publicity, who is going around the nation talking about how uh, the next major war in the Middle East is going to be the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Well, I appreciate the fact that uh, at least uh, God is using him to get people's attention on the Middle East and uh, on what the Bible says in Bible prophecy. But I think he's off base when he says the next major war in the Middle East is going to be Ezekiel 38 and 39 because it says there several times that Russia will be living, I mean that Israel will be living in peace and security without walls. And as you and I well know, and I think as all your listeners know, Israel is not living in peace and security. And in fact, Israel is building a wall 400 miles long down the middle of the country to protect it from uh, Palestinian terrorists. Well, and you also have Israel presently passing out gas masks to its entire population, concerned about a multi-front war with Hezbollah, Syria, perhaps Iran, and the Hamas. And you know, we can get into a whole list of current events about that, but you're absolutely right. They have not, they're not living in peace, and they're very concerned about a, a coming war. Well, let me ask you a question, Bill. The, 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 um, uh, the argument that I've run across, I guess, the most regarding Psalm 83 uh, is that people slough it off and say, oh, it's already been fulfilled. Either it's been fulfilled in ancient Bible prophecy, in wars that took place in Old Testament times, or... It has been fulfilled in the Six-Day War of 1967. Right. Well, they, get, they cite the Second Chronicles 20 argument, which listed Edom, Ammon, Moab, I think part, possibly Syria back then, as coming against Israel. But, of course, that's only four of the ten populations, so that can't be it. That's, there's ten populations in Psalm 83, verses 6 through 8. Right. So that wasn't it. Um, you have... Uh, people like Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum make a good argument that partial fulfillment of Psalm 83, at least the attitude, was manifest in 1948, the war, and 1967. But you didn't have all the populations 
involved necessarily in that. You had too many in one and too little in the other. But I think the greatest argument, David, as to why it hasn't been fulfilled, one of the better arguments, is that Psalm 83, verses 9 and 10, Asaph petitions God how he would like him to deal with this confederacy that's going to come in Israel, which is their mandate, of course, is to wipe Israel off the map, that the name Israel will be remembered no more. That's in Psalm 83, verses 4 and 5. That he's petitioning them to go back to the historical, positioning God to go back to the historical precedents of the time of Gideon and the Midianites and the prophetess Deborah. You go back into Judges, you find these, these war stories, uh, prophetess Deborah and Ehud Barak uh, to take out Jabin and, and Sisera and them. And, and when Israel was lifted up, these Israeli defense forces of those days, when they were lifted up by God to do battle against those enemies who had oppressed them for numerous years, uh, the, the Israelites won, and those entities, those enemies of Israel, ceased to further oppress them. I think that's a very important point. What, what Asaph is petitioning God to do is to get rid of this Arab conflict with the Jews so that they cease to oppress the Jews further, and they are presently oppressing the Jews and wanting to have war against the Jews. Yeah, that, I think that's a very good point. So I think that's one of the better arguments, and uh, we're, we're just seeing this stuff unfold before our very eyes. I, well, let's talk about that for a moment. I want to get your opinion. I'm going to turn this interview around. I'm going to interview you. Hey, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Okay, <laughs> now, I want to ask you a question. Um, how, how close do you think we are to the fulfillment of Psalm 83? Because I'll just tell you, I think we're right on the verge of it. Well, I think we could on the... Uh, very upfront side, see it even this year. Um, yes. But it's hard to say for sure, and I want to be careful not to turn our listeners off as to think we're sensationalists or things like that. But it could it could be within five or ten years on the on the outside. I, I don't see that really. I'm going to tell my personal opinion. I think things could could ratchet up, and I'll just lay a possible scenario out real quickly for you. Uh, I could see Israel preempting a strike against Iran, who has bona fide war pacts signed with Hezbollah, Syria, and Hamas, that should Iran or any of those entities be attacked by Israel, they're supposed to come alongside and fight against Israel collectively. I could see Israel preempting a strike against Iran's nuclear sites, provoking a war upon themselves from Hezbollah, Syria, and Hamas, which is, by the way, what Israel is preparing for a multi-front war right. presently for. I could then see Israel not being able to withstand any war of attrition with those entities. Remember, Hezbollah presently has 50,000 rockets. They lobbed right. 4,000 into Israel in 2006. And the now summer. they're getting scuds. They're getting scuds from Syria. That news just came out a few uh, about a week ago. Hamas, and now we just now realize Hamas can probably hit Demona, which is the site with their rockets and mm -hmm. Israel's nuclear site. I mean, everything is just building up. But the point being, an Israeli strike upon Iran strategically could happen. Everybody's expecting that's what it's going to come to because it, there's no crippling sanctions. There's no green protest movement in Iran that's going to change things. And Obama's engagement plan is just falling by the wayside. So we could see a war coming against Israel provoked by a preemptive strike, and Israel will have to act decisively. And I could see them taking out Damascus, which is, Dave, well, what's that prophecy? Isaiah 17.1, correct? Yes. So now we have Syria drawn into this thing. And the Arab League meets, the 22 members. Syria is a prominent member of the Arab League, and they're going to have to draw a line in the sand if that happens and make Jordan and Egypt choose sides. Are they yep. going to? And, and we already know there's problems in Jordan and Egypt with their fragile peace treaties. King Abdullah just recently came out and said he's frustrated with the peace he's had with Israel. Uh, they were better off economically before it. He's concerned that a war is imminent in Jerusalem. And then Mubarak of Egypt 
He's 85, 86 years old right now, probably either about ready to retire or to be expired, you know, and, and move on to wherever he's going to go. But the point being is that there, those are two members of Psalm 83 that have fragile peace treaties with Israel that will be forced to make a decision, and we know what decision they'll make. Ultimately, they'll align themselves in Psalm 83. Saudi Arabia, of course, could come into the fold as well. So, yeah. I saw them uh, interview John Bolton uh, this morning on uh, on the uh, Fox News, a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., a very tough guy and a very much of a realist. And he just said, you know, uh, we have given uh, Iran a green light. He said, we have uh, the, the Obama administration has simply said, we're not going to do anything. And he said uh, they realized that, and he said they realized they won. They realized they have stood up to us eyeball to eyeball, and we blinked. And we have just basically said, you know, we're not going to do anything. And uh, so it's up to the Israelis now. And with this madman in Iran saying the moment he gets an atomic bomb, he's going to use it against Israel, Israel has to do something. I mean, there's not a country in the world that would sit on the sidelines and allow a madman to say, the moment I get an atomic bomb, I'll drop it on you, and not do something. And yet the moment Israel does something, the whole world will condemn Israel. Well, also, and I, I really listen to John Bolton when he speaks, because I think he's uh, really in the know on this stuff. Also, recently it was said, and I want your opinion on this from a political perspective, that and we know Obama has alienated Israel. We he's oh. probably been the most anti-Israel president we have. But um, Gates came out, I think it was recently, and said we're not taking the uh, strike a war against Iran from America, initiated by America against Iran, off the table. I don't see that as even an option. Where, what do you think about that? Say so, no, no, again. What was that? Now? That America, rather than Israel, might come against Iran. What's your thoughts on that? Under the current administration, I don't think there's any possibility that uh, we're going to strike Iran. I concur. Um, you know, first of all, is he going to be able to muster up congressional support? Is he going to yeah, be able to muster right. up a yeah. coalition? Yeah. Well, I'll I tell you, I, I think uh, the whole attitude of the Obama administration was summed up beautifully by some commentator. I wish I could remember his name. I, I, I'd never heard of him before, but I read his comment the other day, and it was just brilliant. He said, we have got a real problem in this nation when we have a president who is more concerned about Jews building houses in Jerusalem than Iranians building atomic bombs. Well, that's it. That's <laughs> Psalm 83 is going to happen. And when it happens, and we're seeing the stages set for that, it's going to probably ripen Israel as that carrot on a string that Russia and Iran and there you Turkey, go. Turkey's in the news now, licks their chops, to come against Israel for the great plunder. They'll be dwelling securely, et cetera. Right. Now, what's going on with Turkey? I know now they're making uh, hedgeway. That they're not being part of the EU, which now that puts them ripe for the Magog team. Well, uh, Turkey, uh, uh, of course, uh, when the Ottoman Empire fell, uh, Turkey uh, was taken over by a, uh, a brilliant um, secular leader by the name of Ataturk. If you've ever been to Turkey, you know there's a statue of him on every street corner in the nation. And uh, he secularized the nation and uh, deprived it of its uh, previous uh, Islamic government. And ever since then, ever since the 20s, he has, uh, uh, the nation of Turkey has had a secular government, and Turkey has been a very Western-oriented nation, very Western-oriented. Well, in 1999, uh, Turkey applied to become a member of the European Union. And they have been a member in waiting ever since then. And what has happened is that 
for 10 years since then, the European Union has come up with every excuse possible to not allow them to come in. Uh, their, their political situation was not stable enough. Their economic situation was not stable enough. Their human rights situation was not stable enough. They've come up with excuse after excuse after excuse. And these are excuses because the bottom line is that the Europeans do not want Turkey in the European Union because when a nation joins the European Union, it's like becoming a, a state in the United States. Uh, when Hawaii became a state, that meant that anybody in the United States could move to Hawaii without a visa, without a passport. Uh, they could work there. They could get a job there without a job permit. Same way in the European Union. If Turkey were to be admitted to the European Union, all the Turks would have the freedom to move anywhere within the European Union and get a job anywhere within the European Union. And Turkey is the second largest nation over there. Germany's number one. Turkey is, has 72 million people about 98% of which are Muslims. And what the Europeans fear is if they allow Turkey to become a member of the European Union, Europe will be flooded with Muslims. So they're not going to let Turkey in. They're going to continue to find excuses. But the real thing that happened, the, the turning point, was in 2003. In 2003, for the first time in modern history, a devout Muslim came to power in Turkey. In fact, I would say he was more than devout. I would say he was a fundamentalist terrorist-minded Muslim uh, by the name of Edrogan. And this fellow has written, uh, he's been in jail a lot in Turkey because he was always writing terroristic-type poetry, uh, 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 talking about the glories of bombing and killing people. Well, he came to power, and ever since he came to power, uh, he has been trying to reinstitute an Islamic government in Turkey. And uh, he's been right on the verge of accomplishing this several times, what has happened is that in the past, anybody that tried to do that, the military rose up and overthrew them. So he has been afraid, I think, of a military coup. But nonetheless, he continues to push hard, and uh, he has moved uh, Turkey away from Europe. He has moved them back so that they are now oriented toward the Islamic world. He's cut off his relations with uh, Israel. Uh, they used to have joint military operations. He's cut those off. He's gone to Syria and signed a military pact with Syria. And so you, what you're seeing is Turkey getting in bed with the Muslim world after all these years of being Western-oriented. And, of course, as you well know, Bill, that's just a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Well, Turkey is a prominent player in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's right. And I think didn't Turkey recently... Uh, call I, uh, Iran a friend of Oh, Turkey? yes. Oh, yes. They so. have embraced the Iranians. So you're just seeing Turkey move right into the Muslim world just as the Bible pro prophesies they will be in the end times. And Erdogan's attempt to turn Turkey into a Muslim-dominated country is going to be unrestricted now with these continued excuses by the EU. Oh, I think so. Not I bringing so. them in. Now, you additionally have Libya involved in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Muammar Gaddafi, I believe it was in the latter part of 2008, hooked up with Russia, and Russia's going to help him develop a civilian nuclear uh, power <laughs> program. Well, that's exactly what they did, uh, I think it was in 2005, with Iran, and what Russia did yeah. with Iran. And, of course, now we know what that's escalated into. Or Iran well, you know, I, I get tickled every time I think of Gaddafi because... Uh, he was a pipsqueak uh, guy, kind of like uh, Castro, uh, awarding himself medals and marching around in his military uniform and playing like a big shot. And he got heavily involved in terrorism, as you well know. And 
when he started blowing up airplanes and all that sort of thing. Uh, Ronald Reagan just simply sent some fighter planes over there, and uh, they went into Libya and bombed Omar Gaddafi's home. <laughs> and ever since that happened, Gaddafi uh, decided that uh, he was going to get on the straight and narrow, disassociate himself from terrorists, stop the uh, constant uh, uh, mouthing off, and he's behaved himself pretty well until just recently. <laughs> but it took a decisive act. <laughs> well, and when Bush declared the war on terror, Gaddafi sort of, you know, kowtowed down to Bush. That's right. But That's now right. we don't have Bush in the office anymore. Well, we have a person in office that all of these guys know is not going to do anything. Because what we have, and, and I hope your uh, listeners understand this, is we have a president who is a classic humanist. And a humanist is a person who believes in the essential goodness of mankind, and he believes that you can just sit down and talk people into being good, and he believes that if anybody is acting badly, uh, like the president of Iran, it's because they have been mistreated and probably mistreated by us. Therefore, we must constantly apologize to them. We must kowtow to them. We must do everything we possibly can uh, to make them feel wanted and loved, because if we do that, they will start acting in a proper manner, because a humanist does not believe that there's anybody around who is essentially evil. Well, Obama may be a humanist, but... <laughs> Uh, Ahmadinejad, or Ahmadinejad, <laughs> as Rosenberg calls him, he's apocalyptically minded, and you he's better trying believe to bring it. forward the Mahdi, who, again, many people are trying to connect with the Shiites as yep. the Antichrist, and there's all kinds of flaws with that. Uh, you know, I don't know if you want to spend a moment on that. Um, but do you want to talk about that for at all? The, the well, I, I, you know, that's just one of the points that, that should be made whenever there's talk about, uh, these fellows are talking about how, uh, 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 the ones who believe in a, in, in a Muslim antichrist are saying, well, that there is this uh, concept in uh, Muslim eschatology uh, that there is going to be a Mahdi, a savior in the end times, and he's going to come and take over the world, and the Muslims are going to reign over the world. So the whole Muslim world is looking for this Mahdi, when the fact of the matter is that the concept of a Mahdi is... Uh, always been uh, a characteristic of Shiite thinking and not Sunni thinking, uh, because part of that concept has always been that this would be a Shiite and that he would immediately rise to world power and show the superiority of Shiite over Sunni and, in fact, kill off the Sunnis if they don't agree to accept him. Uh, and, and yet these guys are saying, no, the whole Sunni world is, is looking for this Mahdi. That is not true. It's only that it's the Shiite world that's looking for the Mahdi, and the Shiites constitute 10% of all of the Muslims in the world. Yeah, and you have uh, Hezbollah and Iran are a major f uh, faction of that 10%. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, and the Shiites, if I'm not mistaken, are actually looking for an Antichrist called the Dajjal. Is that yeah, with the Sunnis are. Yeah, they're looking for it. Yeah, uh, that's Sun right. Sunnis, Both of them are, me. yeah. Sunnis, excuse me. Okay, now, David, um, folks, what we're talking about right now are prophetic events foretold centuries ago that are stage setting and about to be fulfilled amidst the backdrop of the miraculous uh, reinstatement of the nation of Israel in 1948 and the revived Roman Empire that David has eloquently spoken about in this interview we're talking about Israeli war prophecies about to hit humanity head-on and they're going to have world-changing effects and your lives will be changed and these lives may your lives may be changed as soon as this year um, David what is the what is the hope for people who are concerned and paying attention to the very things we're talking about? Well, the hope is to keep in mind Psalm 2 
and I urge your viewer, uh, your your listeners, to uh, read the Psalm two. It'll take them all about two minutes, but the hope is there. The hope is uh, very clearly there. Psalm two states that all of the leaders of the world are constantly involved in conspiring against God and His anointed one, the Messiah. But it says that while they do this, and while they shake their fists at God, and while they say to God, who are you to put limitations on us, we'll do what we please, it says God sits in the heavens and laughs. He laughs not because he's not concerned. He laughs because he has it all under control. He has the wisdom and he has the power to orchestrate all the evil of mankind to the triumph of his will. He's proved this over and over. For example... The most dastardly act in the history of humanity was the crucifixion of the Son of God. Yet through the resurrection, God took the most dastardly act of history and made it one of the most glorious things in history uh, through the power of the resurrection. World War I and World War II were horrors beyond imagination, yet God worked through the horror of those wars to bring uh, his purpose out. World War I prepared the land for the people. It prepared the land of Israel for the Jewish people. World War II prepared the people for the land. It doesn't matter what Satan throws at God. It doesn't matter what man comes up with. God sits in the heavens and laughs because he is in control. And we need to remind ourselves constantly, regardless of whether or not things look like they're out of control in the world, God is in control. He is going to orchestrate everything to uh, his to his purpose and his the victory of his son, you can see that in the history of Israel. It says in the Bible, in in Isaiah 66, that when Israel is reestablished, the birth pangs will come after it's established. It was established on May the 14th, 1948. The birth pangs began the next day when seven Arab nations attacked. They have continued to this day in war after war after war. But the Bible also says, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And Amos 9 says, once he puts them back in that land, they'll never be rooted up again. And it doesn't matter if you have 300 million Arabs surrounding only 6 million Jews. The Jewish people are going to win time after time after time because God has regathered them, established them, and he is going to see to it that they stay there. And when is Jesus coming? Are we going to be here for these prophecies? We don't know, David. What's your take on the rapture? And how can people go in the rapture and avoid these, at least the tribulation and the Armageddon campaign? Well, I think that uh, some of us living today are going to see the return of the Lord. I'm not a date setter. I can't set dates. But I'm, the Bible gives us signs to look for that are called signs of the times that point to the season of the Lord's return. And we're in that season. And, and the Bible says that those who see... Uh, the uh, reestablishment of the nation of Israel are the ones who are going to see all these things come to pass and see the Lord's return. So I believe that somebody who was alive on May the 14th, 1948, is going to be alive when the Lord returns. It may be somebody who was three years old then. They may be 80 when the Lord comes back. But I think we're living on borrowed time. And the Lord, there's not one prophecy, as you well know, that has to be fulfilled for the Lord to come for his church. He could come tomorrow. He could come today. Uh, we, uh, we are living on board time. And, and the Lord deals with sin in one of two ways. According to John 3:36, God deals with sin either with wrath or with grace. That means every person on planet Earth is under either the wrath of God or the grace of God. It's a terrible thing to be under the wrath of God. It's a glorious thing to be under his grace. And the only thing you have to do to move from the wrath to the grace is to reach out in faith and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
He will forgive your sins. He will forget your sins. You will be born again. The Holy Spirit will come to live within you, and you will have the promise of the rapture. And to our listeners, uh, at the conclusion here, Pastor Dave Hart and myself will be telling you how you can accept Jesus Christ in your life. And David, I want to thank you so much for being on our program today. And I want to tell you, and the listeners, one of my favorite lines I've ever heard at a prophecy conference is one you put out in Louisiana when we were over there. And you said, I'm no longer, we're so far into the end times, I'm no longer looking for the signs, but I'm listening for the sound. Amen, brother. Amen. And that's Well, Bill, I appreciate being on your program. It's always a joy. I love you, uh, your writing. You have great insights, and I hope you'll keep writing. I will, David, and we'll have to have you back again. I look forward to seeing you again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this edition of Prophecy Update. As our host and his guest have so eloquently put, time is short. Even those who were born at the birth of the nation of Israel in 1948 could very well see the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, are you ready for him? Many people recognize this passage in the Gospel of John, even believers and non-believers alike. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You can do that so simply. It is a free gift to you if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you repent, turn from your sin and accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you have questions on how to do that, you can email Bill at his website at www.prophecydepot.com and Bill can easily give you that information or you can simply phone here at KWBB at 1-800-910-KWBB. That's 1-800-910-5922. And I will be most happy to tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until next time, keep looking up, for your redemption draweth nigh.